the Trent, the Jet, they like agents on top of pavements, peppermint patty fragrance. Taking the credits when they spits and spritz a chip and dip a dip and dell I pin the tail. Death throw the penalty ID, throwing identity, theft crime in the night, pick pop, keep the lock, stop, drop, roll the dice, double double dough, eat the rock road, Rochambeau, tic tac toe, crossing a roll with the nice flow, with my industry, see me room, room, play monopoly with my commodities, stop the eyes and cross the teeth, teeth. How do you do, Venters? My chief purpose of this podcast is to have meaningful conversations with significant individuals whom I have connected with along the way. As my daughter says in the intro, we will dot all the I's and cross all the T's to prove that questions are the answers while finding out what these significant people ultimately vent about. Venters, I want to know. Are you ready for the next episode? Hey, 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 hey. Vent with Trent every day. That would be ideal. But in the meantime, in episode number three, I sit down with KTLA5 news anchor Chris Schauble, who will be forever known for his classic reaction to an earthquake while on air. That video probably went viral because no one expects someone as cool as Chris to react that way to anything. So don't take it from me. Listen for yourself to see how cool Chris actually is under pressure. Well, Venters, I'm here with Chris, and he's fresh off the air. And so we're sitting in the KTLA studios. And so, Chris, first and foremost, I want to welcome you to the third episode of Vent with Trent the Gent. Oh, I like it. That's a good title, (laughs) man. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, Great. Thank you for being here. So let's start with your childhood, if, if we could. What were you passionate about as, as a child or in, a, in another way, what did you want to do before anyone told you what you ought to do? Right. I, I thought that I was going to be the next Earl Campbell. I thought I was going to be a professional running back in the NFL because I was, I was bigger than most of the kids my age when I was a kid. You know, by the time I got to junior high and high school, that kind of evened out. So I was an early bloomer, so I was bigger, stronger, faster than most of the kids my age. So I just thought I was going to be an NFL running back, loved football. Uh, so yeah, that's what I thought I was going to be. And then reality struck. <laughs> and then I realized I wasn't as fast and as big and as strong as maybe I thought I was. So I also read somewhere that you got some athletic scholarships for football. Is that correct? You know what? I, it's funny. You're like the second person that's mentioned that. And the truth of the matter is I was offered small school scholarships, but nothing big, nothing major. I didn't play in college, nothing like that. I wasn't, I wasn't, my whole thing was if I wasn't going to play D1 ball and uh, I was a tight end, you know, when I was finished playing in high school, if I was going to, if I was going to play D1 ball, then it was time for me to just concentrate on my academics and what would be my career. So, so you know the injuries were starting to mount by the time i you know a shoulder surgery a knee surgery you know that's just in high school college would have been even more grueling and more demanding and more physical so yeah i made the right decision i think with hindsight being 2020 to leave football behind and concentrate on academics so what you know today about ctes and concussion which you and obviously you're football career as as you said didn't go as far as as you wanted it to go but knowing what you know now about concussions which you still have played as a young person um yes only because i 
stopped at a time when, you know, it before it got too far, so to speak. We know that those concussions mount now. We know they have long-term impacts, and and who knows, you know, back then, we, you know, you'd get dinged, you know, you'd a head helmet to helmet contact. It'd be pretty hard, and you wouldn't think in terms of concussion concussions back then. We're talking. I I played in the '80s when I was in high school. I graduated in '88. So so for me. Um, yeah, I would have still played, and I think the the question my wife and I have talked about is, you know, if we had had boys, would I have allowed them to play? And she knows the answer is yes. And uh, you know, and would I have encouraged them to play? And the answer would have been yes. And so, you know, just because I love the sport that much, that said, I have all girls, so yeah. it's a non-issue. It's an absolutely non-issue. And there, <laughs> and the two younger ones would have been. On the football field, they would have been, because they're kind of tomboyish, they would have been beasts on the football field. So you mentioned your girls, so we might as well talk about that right now. So how does one cope with two sets of, of twin girls Right. at that? Not just two sets of twins, but, but girls. So you're in a house full of ladies. Right. I, I don't even think of it as something that um, in any way, shape, or form is negative. Uh, it's just one of those things where they are, I think my wife would tell you, my family would tell you that my whole world revolves around my daughters. You know, like I love them to pieces. They're a blessing to me. Uh, they're not always perfect, but I don't know anyone who is. Uh, and if they were perfect, they wouldn't have anything to do with me. So um, it's one of those situations where the first set of twins was in vitro fertilization. The second set was completely natural and unexpected two years after that. And they're a 14 and 12, respectively, going into the, they're going to be sophomores and uh, seventh graders, middle schoolers. Uh, so uh, this year, so I've got almost four teenagers in my household. And trust me, my, my financials will tell you that I got four teenage girls because they always need something, man. Braces, you know, dresses, hair done, all that stuff, man. Exactly. I, I'm in the same boat. I, I got three teenagers. So... Hearing that, a lot of, of the listeners might say, wow, that's, that's a scary proposition, having, having four teenagers and sets of twins. With that said, what are you fear, fearful of? What, what scares you? Well, the, this, the thing that I think about every day, and this is the truth, and I, I'm fortunate because there's some other avenues that will help, is how am I going to pay for college? I don't worry about weddings. I don't worry about any of that kind of stuff. I worry about college because as you know the cost of college depending on where they go every year could be anywhere from 35 to seventy thousand dollars a year i know very few people i make good money i don't know i, I don't know anybody who can afford four dollars in college at at 35 to seventy thousand dollars i just don't know anybody like that and so no matter how much i save i always know it won't be enough the thing that bails me out is um they're pretty talented in a variety of areas and so i think that they'll probably get some help to go to school, uh, you know, one, you know, just ticking off their, their achievements. The older twins, one's a runner, an accomplished runner. The other one's a good golfer. Uh, they both are well-rounded. They're good student athletes. The younger ones, one's an All-American uh, shot putter. And then um, she used to be a sprinter. And then as she got older, she realized she was a better shot putter. And so she concentrates on that with track and field. And then my her twin, one of the younger twins, her twin um, uh, is also a hurdler and soccer player. So there's a lot of opportunities there in addition to their academic success to be helped to go to school. So, so hopefully if I can just get two of them 
to get scholarships or partials or something, that'll help a lot. And so we, we you know, I spent a lot of time researching all of that and kind of figuring all that stuff out. You mentioned a lot of um, sports that are being in the Olympics right now, so we might as well talk about sure, the, sure. The, the Olympics. Um, not saying that your daughters have any Olympic aspirations, but um, actually you just got off the air doing some headlines on, on the Olympics. Right. And I'm sure you know some some of your colleagues that might be in Rio right yeah, now reporting. Sure. Yeah. So with all the things that are being reported to us over here in the U.S., what are they telling you? What are your colleagues telling you? Is, is it true? Is it being blown out of proportion? Or, or what are you hearing that's actually happened in Rio? What's interesting is I used to work with a guy, his name's Bill Seward. Uh, when I was at a different station in town, I'm now with Channel 5, obviously, but when I was with a different station in town, uh, Bill Seward, and he's also my neighbor. He lives like literally within a walking distance from my house. And, and I was watching and, uh, you know, they cut to rugby and here he was calling the rugby. And I'm like, hey man, you're calling the rugby game. So, so he, he's having a blast. He's, I think they were having a lot of fun. I think it's high energy. I think that, you know, in terms of like Zika virus and stuff like that, I don't think that's really being, um, a con I don't think that's a concern for most people. If you take the proper precautions after that, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. I'm not saying it's not a concern, but I'm just saying it's not as big a concern as I think people might think. People actually pulled out of the Olympics. And so when I was communicating with my buddy, he just didn't have that concern. He said it's been a good experience. Let's go back to your family and, and the family situation. And I don't think it's any secret that um, your adoption right. and your search for your birth parents have as well documented yeah. on KTLA as well. But besides the obvious and learning who your birth parents are and were, what did you learn about yourself mostly during that exploration? Well, I learned how I came into the world. I learned that it was a, a biracial relationship in the 60s and I was born in 70, you know, and uh, I learned that, um, you know, back then that was just unheard of. Now it's no big deal for the most part. Back then it was just not done and it was in Florida. So the South and the part of Florida that they lived in, it was the deep South. So it wasn't like hip happened in Miami. It was like, you know, rural, you know, Southern, like Florida kind of stuff. So, uh, so that was interesting. And so uh, I learned that the relationship, they gave me up because my biological father was a, an alcoholic and he was having numerous issues, you know, in the relationship beyond that. And she basically said, you're not fit to raise a child. So she gave me up for adoption. And the great irony is two years later, they got married anyway, you know, after they'd already given me up for adoption. Hmm. But she told me, so I asked her, I said, what, this is my biological mother. Her name is Virginia. She's deceased now. She passed away in January. But, um, uh, you know, I asked her what would my life have been like? She said it would have been a very hard life if, if we had kept you and tried to raise you. And she said you would have had a very difficult life. And, I, and based on her description of the circumstances, I, I tend to agree. So, you know, I do believe everything happens for a reason. And being put up for adoption was the best thing because I love the family that I have, that my Shabal family that I was adopted by. So they don't treat me, you know, I was adopted when I was three months old. They don't treat me any different than they treat their other, my other siblings. So that's cool. Being a journalist and just taking the word journal out of that word, journalist, did you journal during 
that exploration to find your first friends that you write a not, lot? Not, not, uh, I made some notes and stuff like that, but generally everything was being documented um, on air and in interviews on air that would, you know, later be, they were recorded interviews that would later be broadcast. So everything was kind of um, documented for me. I didn't have to do that. Uh, I remember when I first talked to my biological mother, Virginia, um, uh, tears, just tears. You know, we talked on the phone before I got to go meet her. So, uh, so that was special. That was very special. And so the tears happened during that phone conversation. Yeah, my wife recorded it because it, it was unexpected that we were going to have that opportunity. So she recorded it. And um, yeah, it was, it was magnificent. Let's transition into to, to news and journalism. What makes for a good news story? Uh, that's, there's a variety, depending on uh, whose expert opinion you talk to. Uh, normally, a good news story is something out of the norm. You know, man successfully drives to work. That's not a news story. <laughs> you know, man, you know, hits a palm tree and the palm tree falls over, knocks over a fire hydrant, and now there's a spout that's shutting down a freeway, that's a story. So that generally it's something out of the ordinary or uncommon. So that's why when people say, why is the news always bad? My response is it's not always bad. However, things that are bad tend to be the things that are out of the norm. You know, the Olympics are very good and that's the biggest story going right now. So, so you, you mentioned bad news and that's, I was going to ask you that question with the seemingly disproportionate amount of bad news being reported. Right. I say seemingly. How, is it tough to keep your sanity? Are you immune to certain um, things that you hear now, just reporting? Yeah, I would say things? that after a while, you have to, um, you, you, you develop a thick skin. It doesn't mean you're not caring, and it just means that something has to be particularly egregious for it to break through that emotional uh, callous, if you will, that you tend to have. Doesn't mean you don't care about people or anything like that. It just means, you know, when you report something day after day, you, I can almost see a phrase in a sentence and know how the sentence is going to be finished. Uh, if you tell me the words officer involved, I naturally think the next word is going to be shooting. It could be an officer was involved in a rescue and that'll throw me off because I'm, I'm so programmed to think shooting after that and that's kind of not good but 99 times out of 100 it's going to be right the instinct you have to fight is that 100 meaning like don't get caught off guard you know know, know that allow for surprise the element of surprise and stuff like that because no matter how many i've been in the business 25 years and i know well enough to know i definitely do not know it all so you've been in it 25 years, how has TMZ changed the industry? Um, how, do you feel that they have disrupted the industry because now they're breaking news stories? Right. Well, they break a certain kind of news story. I mean, they're not, they're not gonna, you know, they don't cover weather for the most part unless it is celebrity related. Like, you know, say a big time celebrity is stranded overseas because of a hurricane, then that would be something they would cover. But generally, the kind of stuff they do is not necessarily the same stuff we do. There is times when it, when it commingles, but they, they just have a lot of resources that they've committed, and we don't have those kind of resources. They're, they have a very narrow focus, and they're very, very good at what they do. 
but they could care less about some of the stuff that we have to do. Like they, they're not going to give you a daily weather report. They're not going to tell you it's going to be this temperature in the morning and then this temperature at night. They're not going to tell you that. They're not going to tell you what kind of weekend weather you can expect. You know, they, we're in the same, we're not really in the same, plus they pay for stories. They, they, we are up front. We don't pay for stories. Keeps us objective. They pay for stories. And, and again, good for them. It's what they do. They can do that. They don't pay for all of them, but they pay for some of them. And that's fine. That's their call. That's what they do. And they're very, very good at what they do. So when you were a young reporter, and I know you reported on Columbine and yeah. you helped your station, and it was in Denver, I believe, yeah. um, won a, a regional Emmy for that. What, what has been the biggest, and I don't know if it's a big deal, but what has been the biggest scoop that you've ever had? Mm. If you can remember. Biggest scoop. Is that, a, is that a big deal now? Just the school, who who gets the story first? Yeah, or? it first still matters. First is first is still very important. Uh, when I was in Denver, I did a, a story on a cop scandal that was a, a scoop. Uh, but in terms of just having stories first, that that comes and goes. Um, some days you'll have it first. Some days you'll report it first. Other days you won't. You'll be second or third. But you have to understand that's by a matter of like normally that's only by a matter of minutes. You know, it's not like they someone else had it or i had it in the morning and someone else doesn't have it until 12 hours later at night it's more like you know i had it at just say for example 601 someone else might have it at 603. so if you're watching either station you're going to get the information you just may not get it at the exact same time so and that's what a lot of people i think don't realize is that or maybe they do is that i would say if you compared the content of most news stations you're going to get anywhere from 70 to 80% similar stories. It's the it's those other percentage stories that, and then the style of the people presenting them that make people choose who they want to watch and why and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. So for the young aspiring journalism majors that might be listening out there, what skills would they need be, besides what they're being taught in? in school and college? Well, I think there, there has to be an innate curiosity. You have to be curious about the world in which you live and want to share that. You know, you have to be, you have to almost be a teacher yourself. So when you're reporting out in the field or you're going live, you have to be a teacher and they call them, uh, uh, you know, everyone's familiar with the phrase teachable moments. You know, like to me, I want, I want to see my reporters walk and talk and, and demonstrate. I like demonstrative reporters. You can tell the car hit the ice here on the road and then spun out of control to its final resting place here against the guardrail, you know, while the reporter's walking. That kind of stuff is what I enjoy watching personally as a, as a viewer. And that's the way I was when I was in the field more. Um, so, so hunger, presentation, you have to be dedicated. You know, you got to be in it for the right. If you just want to be on TV and get recognized at the grocery store, that's going to get old real fast. I value my privacy so much i don't have an instagram it's actually technically i do but it's because one of my daughters jokingly created one and it's got stupid pictures on it and stuff like that so technically i do but i don't manage it and it doesn't really i don't even think it gets much activity but so i don't instagram i don't i have a facebook page because the station kind of requires us to have one i have a like page uh, i do tweet because i like twitter it's short simple to the point i love twitter uh, don't Instagram, don't Snapchat, don't Facebook much. Yeah, so I, I enjoy my privacy. So, so uh, which I know may seem counterintuitive, but uh, that's just how I am. Yeah. So 
So a little bit later, we're gonna uh, give you the opportunity to let the audience know how to, to reach you. So um, don't 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 contact <laughs> me. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm so, kidding. Twitter, well, that's well, gonna be the way. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how how that goes. And given that you're um, so private, once again, I want to thank you for for doing no, this, this, this interview. So going back to, to journalism, what has been the most precarious situation that you've been in? Probably maybe in the field reporting on something. Were you ever in a situation that you maybe you felt just for your life, or maybe this might not be safe? Yeah, there's there's times where um, you have to go places and talk to people that you'd really rather not. And uh, for example, if someone's been killed, you know, by any manner, whether it was an accident or a shooting, you know, a homicide or something like that, you always have to go try and talk to the family. The toughest job to me as a reporter was always trying to find the family member of the victim and then ask them to speak because you never knew what you were going to get you would either get a yes i i don't mind talking to you uh or uh get the hell off my property or you know it's just a variety of things and sometimes they can be very threatening in how they respond but here's the thing you have to ask if you don't ask then you never know the answer because it's it it really helps a story when the family members talk and provide pictures and stuff like that of a if it's a crime like that. Uh, so that's that to me that was always the toughest part. And you know from time to time you'd run into some really, you know, understandably upset people that didn't want to communicate in any way, shape, or form, and they were angry about you being there, even though it's my job to go talk to them. Yeah. You know, um, while you were in Florida. Didn't report on any hurricanes or anything. Oh, yeah, like I've, that, I've covered, uh, oh my gosh, it's been 20 something years. Uh, one of the hurricanes that hit the uh, Gulf Coast and then swept up through Georgia and caused flooding. I covered that from start to finish. That was when I was in Spartanburg, South Carolina, um, again, 20 years ago uh, or more. And um, uh, fire, all manner of fires. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to seem distant about it, but after a while, they kind of blur together a little bit but um yeah I've, I've covered fires floods court cases uh you name it hurricanes all of it but nothing ever that was a dangerous situation well i've 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 uh i used to document all my reporting stuff but now that i anchor i don't um i don't you know I used to write all my reporting stories down so I could go back and say, oh, on this day I was doing this, and on this day I was doing that. I haven't done that probably in, you know, going on 10 years because there's just been no need for it. Uh, since I've been in LA, I've transitioned from the reporting side of it to the anchoring side of it. You know, I've been in LA for 15 years now. So, uh, uh, like I said, I used to write it down every day. And, you know, in a box in my garage, I've got journals with what I did reporting on certain days. And, you know, there's a couple of hairy times where we got close to flames and had to hop into a truck and get out of the, the scene. There's been times where, you know, I, I used to have a picture on my desk of me in a, in a uh, almost like a bass boat with a photographer after a hurricane where the flooding had risen so much, we were at, we were at uh, the same level as the power lines that are normally overhead. So, so, you know, nothing, it's not like, it's not like a war correspondent kind of thing where bullets are whizzing by or anything like that. Never like that, but plenty of sticky situations and stuff like that. You got to talk your way out of and stuff like that. So you mentioned sticky situations and talking your way out of it. 
it, it seems to me in your industry, there's that inev inevitable moment where as a reporter, maybe you say something that maybe you shouldn't have said, or you have to retract later or apologize for later. How, how does a journalist navigate through, through that and in this politically correct era? Well, first of all, if you're not sensitive enough to not say something stupid, then that's your own fault. And it's happened to me a few times, but I think the best way to handle it is to apologize and uh, be sincere about the apology and then move forward. You know, and if there's something that needs to be done, do it that way. So, so those moments that happen to you, no regrets. You, you, I mean, like as you said, you you apologize, and or there's some. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, it's nothing nothing too egregious. I mean, well, I take that back. There's there's been a couple of things, but uh, just in general, um, uh, nothing that would get you fired. Let me put it that way, and that's the trick. So you've been reporting on the Rose Parade and covering that for, for yeah. how many years now? Five. Five years. So you've probably seen lots lots of things there. So what's been the most memorable Rose Parade moment in those five years? Um, let's see, the most memorable Rose Parade moment. Mm, probably the one that my family came to, which was, I wanna say, 2011. 2011 may have been the coldest one <laughs> might have been the coldest one, like the third coldest one on record. So it was either 2011 or 2012 that my family came. It was gorgeous, like 70 degrees. My family woke up early for it and all that kind of stuff. And it was it was pretty special. Yeah. And you enjoy, have you always yeah. enjoyed that parade? Well, I enjoy the parade because here's the thing. Everyone else has that day off. We have to work that day. And it's part of the thing of being an on-air talent at Channel 5. If you were, If you work here, expect to work the Rose Parade because it's an honor. You know, it's a Southern California tradition. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to work the Rose Parade. I want to enjoy my New Year's Eve. Uh, I, I see it for what it is. And once you're out there, the vibe from the Southern California community and really nationally because there's so many people they're visiting is amazing. So it's a great experience. And that one particular year when it was perfectly gorgeous, sunny weather, uh, that was something special. So I'll always remember that. Maybe I can break a, a new story here. Uh, it, it's probably already been said, and I just don't know. With Stephanie Edwards and Bob Eubanks right. leaving and uh, retiring, retiring from doing the parade, who's stepping in to, to those shoes? Oh, Is it's been that? announced. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's oh, uh, darn. it's um, <laughs> it's uh, oh my goodness, you would ask me that. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's the guy that used to be on ET, Mark Steinus, okay. along with. Um, the uh, the um, other uh, oh my gosh, she used to be on Extra. What's her name? Uh, it's gonna come to me later. Okay, but well, but yeah, guys, we'll we'll get to that. Let's talk about one of your valuable instruments, which would be your voice right. in, in this industry. And we've already discussed before we went on air that you're um, you just project very well. So have you ever lost your voice when you could not go on, on air? And what are, do you do voice exercises? What are, what are- I don't do any of that. Really? I don't do any of that. You just have you know, a it's voice. Just, it, it just, I think when I was first in the business, it wasn't particularly strong. And then over the years, it just kind of got that way. I, I'm, you know, but I never went to a voice coach. I never, you know, got too, um, 
what's the right way to put it? I never got too focused on that. Like I was focused on the work and then the voice kind of developed naturally, if that makes uh, sense. So, so, uh, and the only time that my voice really gets a little hectic is during the, uh, or a little out of whack is either I'm sick, which happens to everybody, or um, during track season in the spring, I'm a, in my spare time, I volunteer track coach. I'm a level one USATF certified track coach. So I coach, last year in particular was hard because I coached my daughter, younger daughter's youth track team at a certain age group level, the 11s and 12s. And then I, would, I, I was also coaching the West Ranch High School uh, track team sprint group. So it was a lot, it's a lot of yelling. And so much so that one of my assistant coaches got me a bullhorn to save my voice. So uh, that's kind of that was kind of the deal with that. So wow. You run marathons. Used to bad knee. Know. Oh, so they have a bad knee. So how did you? Obviously, your daughters run track, but did you run track as well in in high school? Say that or, again. So you used to run marathons. So I'm trying to see if if that makes you qualified to coach your daughters in, in track? Uh, it, uh, it, it, mean, it means I kind of know what it's like to hurt and, you know, and have to push past barriers, but it doesn't make me qualified. The certification <laughs> makes me qualified because when I was growing up, they'd be like, run, go run some more. Now we know why we run, how we should run, how often we should run. Uh, you're built this way. This is how I think you should run. This is, these are the events I think you'd be good at, that kind of stuff. So it's a much more technical um, type of situation. Yeah. So um, listeners may not know that um, I'm also your, your your custom clothing. Yeah, man. And so with that said. You I, said you're going to give me a free shirt. I'm like, cool. <laughs> so right, how, you're laughing at that. <laughs> free so shirt. Let's, let's gloss over that. So <laughs> how important is your wardrobe to, to you in your profession? Uh, it's very important because it's how you present yourself to the world. And the thing about it that's interesting is people think that people pay for my wardrobe. They don't pay nothing toward my wardrobe. It's all me, my sense of style. And it's funny because after 25 years in the business, things that I was doing long, like decades ago, kind of everyone's doing now. Like everyone wears pocket squares, right? When I came into the business, no one wore pocket squares. I mean, nobody. Now, it, uh, you know, I would say at least 50% of the male anchors wear a pocket square. Maybe less, maybe more, depending on, on who and what. But when I was coming up, no, I was unique in that way. And um, it was just, you know, I used to... Did you, did you do it because you knew that that's what a well-dressed man did? I, or I think I read, I mean, I'm, I had subscriptions to Esquire and GQ in college. So I was reading those magazines and what to do, what not to do. And, you know, the older I get, the more I realize a lot of it becomes a sense of style that you, you don't, once you, know, once you learn the certain fundamentals, you can move away from what everyone else thinks. Like when I was growing up, if, you know, if you'd said wear brown suit, shoes with a gray suit, they would have thought you were crazy, but now that's a sharp look, you know? So it's the, if it's the right combo. And so stuff like that, you know? Um, it's just, I, I just take my presentation seriously, but what's interesting is with four daughters, I'm drained financially to the point where I don't have the, you know, I know I need to keep my look up, and I think for the most part I do, but I used to be a close horse a few years back. Now that discretionary, discretionary income gets funneled to other places. So for me, I have to decide, do I need another suit or does my daughter need, 
you know, a new pair of uh, this, that, and the other, you know, new yeah. season of, you know, track and field, new season of soccer, you know, all that adds up. There's, there's three questions that I normally do in, in every episode, and it's a fill in the blank. So if we can do that really quick. Cool. So just fill in the blank. Don't stop. Persevering. Ever. You're never done. You're never done. Don't stop making yourself a better person. Persevering. Always. You can blank. Make it through whatever you perceive your trouble to be. Trouble doesn't last always. And I firmly believe that. Yes, this too shall pass, right? Conversations are blank. Enlightening. Enlightening. If you're a good listener. If you're a good listener. If you're you're not just about getting your point across and really listening. It's called active listening. Active listening is when, you, you know, someone's talking to you. And you can literally say, so if I understand you correctly, you mean da 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 And then you throw on your stuff. A lot of people aren't active listeners. They're just, someone's moving their mouth while they're, you know, and you're watching them move their mouth, but you don't really care what they have to say because you want to get what you want to say out. Active listening could be, um, like literally, there's interviews I've gone into and I've got a list of questions, but because of active listening, I end up over here in a totally different space because they brought up issues that I wanted to know more about than whatever I thought the interview was going to be about. So yeah, that would be my answer to that. With that definition of active listening, has that changed over the years because of your profession? Or do you think that would be the way you would think about active listening, even if you weren't a... Oh, I think it's because of what I do. I had to understand how to like to me the best interviewers in my lifetime are are um ed bradley now deceased but when i was growing up you know and got into journalism ed bradley of 60 minutes was the guy that i wanted to be i wanted his job i wanted to be working with him that's that was where i wanted to go with my career but then as, as soon as i started my family i realized that life you can't live that life you know, you can't raise a family the way I would expect to raise a family and be gone all the time. Missing Christmas and birthdays and holidays and Fourth of July and all that kind of stuff. That's not, network is not the life for me. I don't aspire to it. I respect it. I can look up at it and go, that's pretty cool. But I don't have to, I have to realize that's not my path. That's, that's not what I want to do. So, so um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that um, Ed Bradley, believe it or not, Howard Stern and Oprah. Are the three best interviewers? Brian Gumble's pretty good too, but those are the three or four best interviewers that I, I right off the top of my head. So that said, because of active listening. Yes. That said, if if you were interviewing yourself today, what question would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask? Uh, let's see. What question would I have <laughs> asked myself? Um, probably along the lines of, you know, you've been here 15 years. Where do you go from here? And the short answer is nowhere. I stay put right here. Whatever I have to achieve is going to be right here at Channel 5. This is my home. The one thing I've learned about the news business is don't get too comfortable. Man makes plans and God laughs. But for the foreseeable future, this is right where I want to be doing exactly what I want to do. I don't want to be a nighttime anchor. I don't want to go to another network. I don't want to go to another city. Any of that. I'm doing exactly what I want to do with whom I want to do it.
what do you want to be remembered by then? I mean, Besides earthquake face, <laughs> that that's gonna that, be there anyway. I can't yeah. do anything about that. That, yeah, was, that. that went viral. Yeah, that went super viral. <laughs> but um, I would say, what do I want to be remembered for? Just, you know, at the end of the day, not even so much the work stuff, but just a good family man, man who loved his, cherished his family. That's that's what I would like to be known for. Let's end up here quickly with a, a few more. Obviously, you're you're very very benevolent. Um, you, you give a lot to the community, and over the 20-some-odd years, you've seen lots of, of, of things uh, reported in, in the news. So with, with all the maybe bad things that you've seen reported in the world, if I were to give you a million dollars, how would you use that to, to, uh, to improve the world? All right, I, would, I would use it to... Um enhance the things that I already do. I would use it, uh, I'm big on foster youth, the kids that, that, especially as they get older, are likely to become emancipated. They turn 18, they're released out into the world with as much resources as the county can give them, but really not much. I'd like to increase services for them, help them get on their feet, really help them go to college, maybe pay for community college for as many of them as I could afford, that kind of thing. Um, I believe that, you know, I volunteer my track time when I coach those kids. Yes, my kids are doing it, and that's why I started doing it. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking like, you know, two hours minimum, four, you know, three times a week, plus track meets. That's an eight-hour day. So, you know, I'm giving a good amount of my volunteer time to those track kids. And the, what I would like to see is the kids who can't afford to join the track team because if they, they can't afford the spike shoes, they can't afford the uniform, all, you know, scholarships. Just give them something to do that gets them off the couch watching TV all day and all that kind of stuff, you know, that there's a variety of uh, data that shows that if you're part of something, you're much better in school, you're more, you're well-adjusted, uh, much more likely to be well-adjusted, all of that stuff. So, so those are the things. I would help foster youth and provide scholarships for like various sports. On every episode of Vent with Trent the Gent, I always give a little uh, momentum of my appreciation. So I got you a Les Brown CD Thank of you, man. motivation. So hopefully you'll, uh, hopefully you're into Les Brown. Oh yeah, if not good, and you'll, you'll take the time to, to listen to that. So I want to thank you again for for being on this third episode of Vent with Trent the Gent. So as we alluded to earlier, so let's hear some of. I know there's not a lot of social platforms where they're. Listeners get Twitter at so. Chris KTLA. Okay. Twitter. That's the best Again, way. and it's at Chris KTLA. It's as easy as that. That's the way you want to reach me. That's how you reach me. Good. Sounds good. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you, Trent. You're and the best, man. We'll do it again. Thank you, Chris. You the you the best. You like? If you do, please go to iTunes and give me a review. Your efforts will be appreciated. Until the next episode. Remember, you're never fully dressed without a smile.